This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most exciting and stylish political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. One piece that might interest Dig listeners is Gabriel Winant's J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, published in the magazine's brand new spring issue. In the piece, Winant, a labor historian, organizer, and previous Dig guest, examines J.D. Vance in the psychoanalytic repression that underpins his political project. Through a close reading of Vance's career and especially his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, Winant argues that Vance is bent on an ethic of culpability, blaming and punishing the working class for the trauma of his own childhood. Looking to political figures like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania and Brandon Johnson in Chicago, Winant asks, how can the left build solidarity out of the real crises of deindustrialization that Vance has weaponized? Dig listeners can take 25% off a year-long print subscription to N Plus One at nplusonemag.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, that's one word, the dig, at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to 18 years of paywalled essays, reviews, and fiction, all for less than $3 a month. That's n-p-l-u-s-o-n-e-m-a-g dot com slash the dig. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The capitalist world system we live under today has for a long time been fueled in significant part and in a fundamental way by oil. In the early years of the international oil market, massive companies known as the oil majors, backed by the U.S. and U.K., exercised their colonial and imperial power to take over and control concessions in Venezuela and across the Middle East. Petrostates, the sovereign landlords of those oil resources, ultimately fought back, leading, in 1960, to the creation of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC. This is the first of a two-part interview with Giuliano Garavini, the author of The Rise and Fall of OPEC in the 20th Century. This episode, part one, covers the rise of OPEC. Next week, we'll start with the height of OPEC's power in the 1970s, and then cover OPEC's fall in the face of the global forces of neoliberal and neocolonial reaction in the 1980s, all the way through to our present fossil-fueled climate crisis. Garavini, telling the entirety of the 20th century through the lens of oil, forces us to rethink everything about that history. Before we get started, though, I'd like you to rethink your relationship to this podcast if you're not already supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig. We are an unusual podcast in a lot of ways, including in that we are primarily funded by voluntary listener contributions. By voluntary, I mean that we don't pay well any of our episodes. We want everyone everywhere to be able to listen, regardless of your ability to pay. So, that means that if you can't afford to pay and you're a dedicated listener to this podcast, please chip in. Even $5 a month is a huge help. And if providing you with the dig every week with no paywall isn't enough of a thank you, please know that we will also send any U.S.-based contributor who gives at least $10 a month a book or books that we will send you in the mail or a fine-looking dig tote bag or mug 
emblazoned with our strange and chaotic logo. And a contribution of any amount from people everywhere gets you our newsletter sent to your email inbox. It's a really good newsletter. Please take a moment to contribute what you can now. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. There is a link in the show notes. Please hit pause. Click it now. Contribute. Okay, here's Giuliano Garavini, who teaches international history at Roma Tre University in Rome. He is the author of After Empires, European Integration, Decolonization, and the Challenge from the Global South, 1957 to 1986, the co-editor of Oil Shock, the 1973 Crisis and its Economic Legacy, and of Countershock, the Oil Counter-Revolution of the 1980s. He is also the author of the book we're discussing today, The Rise and Fall of OPEC in the 20th Century. Giuliano Garavini, welcome to The Dig. Hello. This book is first and foremost about petrostates, the sovereign landlords of the world's petroleum reserves, and about OPEC, the organization they founded to advance their interests within an industry dominated by major oil companies and their imperial patrons. But simply producing oil, you argue, does not make a state into a petrostate. So neither the United States nor Russia nor Great Britain, Norway, Mexico, none of them qualify. You write, quote, in a petrostate, petroleum exports cannot explain everything, but nothing can really be explained without taking into account the impact of petroleum exports. What then is a petrostate, and what makes it different from other states? First of all, as you pointed out, you know, production, the size of production of, of oil is obviously important, but that's not what defines a petrostate. To be a petrostate, a country would have to be very productive. Second uh, characteristics would be that it would have to be uh, a very large exporter and a net exporter of this natural resource. So, for example, the United States is the world's largest oil producer and also the world's largest natural gas producer but it became a net importer of petroleum in 1948. And I guess it still is. So it's not, it's not a petrostate. So these are countries that have a vast amount uh, of oil and the income from these exports represents a, a very significant portion of their economy, of their fiscal revenues, and obviously a very vast proportion of all the exports. So basically most of the exports of these countries. Your book is also about some of the most powerful global capitalists, oil companies, particularly the giant oil majors. And I'll list those majors right now, just for, for reference. Standard Oil of New Jersey, which would become Exxon. Standard Oil of New York, later Mobil. Standard Oil of California, later Chevron. And Texaco, which, of course, later merged with Chevron. Then there's Royal Dutch Shell and the Anglo-Persian oil company, later British Petroleum. All of them were created under the umbrella of colonial or imperial power. The oil majors in that context formed an oligopoly and then ultimately what was essentially a cartel. 
How did the oil majors and this broader petro-capitalist order emerge from the European and American-dominated colonial capitalist world system, a system that, until World War II, remained primarily driven not by oil, but by coal? How did these petro-capitalists ascend? And what features of the emerging oil industry and its inherent tendency towards monopoly drove them to cartelization? The oil industry, from its very beginning, was conducive to become a global industry because oil is easier to transport over long distances than coal or later natural gas. And so the fact that oil was was easier to transport allowed these companies to you know, basically generate a global oil market. The fact that you needed very large investments in order to search for oil and then produce oil allowed a very select group of companies to you know, engage in this uh, capitalist uh, venture. And most of these companies also had uh, big financial groups that helped their venture into uh, oil-producing uh, regions. So, I mean, the combination of the nature of oil as being an energy source, which is easy to transport, the emergence of big finance in the United States and in Great Britain, and the fact that this industry is very capital intensive, you know, allowed the formation of this very select group of companies. Then my other argument would be that, in a way, the creation of this uh, very small group of international oil companies basically represented the emergence of petrocapital. And that if you will, you could write, even though, you know, that won't explain everything that happened in the 20th century, but you could write the history of the 20th century from the point of view of a clash or the interaction between these three important actors that are, on the one hand, is petrocapital represented by these very large capitalist uh, international oil companies. On the other hand, petrostates, which are countries and the governments that try to establish some kind of control over these very productive oil regions, so countries such as Venezuela, which we'll talk about later. And on the other side, consuming governments, which is the governments of countries that are large consumers of these very important energy source countries such as Germany, the United States. So the emergence of petrocapital is interesting because you know it allows a lens through which to tell the story of the 20th century, if you will. In reframing the history of the 20th century, your book goes beyond accounts that define it as this mere great power-driven conflict in terms of looking at the entire history through the Cold War, because this is a form of political alliance that was built not around ideology, but the shared material reality of controlling oil resources. You write, quote, most of them did not share cultural identities, political models, or international alliances. What brought them together was both their position as raw materials exporters, their distinctive natural resource endowment, and the willingness to stand up to the tremendous external pressures that shaped them and weighed heavily on their key industry and income source. 
And so this history of OPEC is a key part of another history that we've discussed a lot on this podcast, the history of third world liberation movements, the non-aligned movement, and this struggle to remake the global political economy, a history of Raoul Prebesh's Economic Commission on Latin America, dependency theory, developmentalism, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, and the fight for a new international economic order. You write, quote, whatever their political system and ideological outlook, whether the absolute monarchy of Saudi Arabia, the progressive military dictatorship in Egypt, or the Indian democracy, whatever their differences in religion or culture, elites in third world countries could potentially identify themselves as belonging to a periphery of commodity producers in a tug of war with the industrialized regions of the center, a global south needing redemption from a wealthy, exploitative north. To ask one last big picture question before we get into a lot of historical detail, how does the history of OPEC require us to rethink entirely conventional narratives of the 20th century, particularly from the perspective of the third world or global south? When you look at the history of natural resources and oil in particular, you discover that certain kinds of relationships, of uh, alliances, of cooperation efforts can only be explained by considering that these countries and these governments uh, are countries and governments that rule over very productive uh, regions from the point of view of oil productions. So to, 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 to put it in more practical terms, the relationship between Venezuela and Iran, which started already after the Second World War with this first visit of Venezuelan technocrats to Iran in 1949, that cannot be explained if not because these countries were important oil exporters. Or if you want to go to recent times, if you want to explain the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Russia, which entered into this uh, strategic alliance, if you will, called, called OPEC Plus in, in 2016, you cannot explain that if not by considering the fact that these were, are the most important oil exporting countries in the world. So if you leave aside this issue of natural resources, there's key elements of international politics and of relationships among communities and countries that you cannot explain. On the other hand, uh, as I think Bob Vitalis pointed out to me, but he likes to explain often, one has to really escape the, the danger of raw materialism, which is the fact that these raw materials tend to explain anything, you know, from the creation of OPEC to wars, you know, the war in Iraq was just a war to control uh, the oil fields. The same goes for Venezuela, you know, the relationship between the United States and Venezuela. It's just because there's a government that is not supportive of U.S. capitalism. I think that's a danger. I think uh, as historians, the broader periodization of, of the 20th century, that relates to a complexity of issues that are not necessarily only related, obviously, to natural resources. So, so if, if I had to define a periodization of, of the 20th century, I would say maybe 
you know, until the 30s is the era of inter-imperial uh, competition with the Nazi regime wanting to build its own empire in Eastern Europe. Uh, then from Second World War to the end of the 1970s, you have the Bretton Woods of regime. And then from the 1980s to maybe the financial crisis, you have the neoliberal regime. So these are maybe the real periodizations and the history of of the relationship between oil producer and oil consuming countries is within this broader framework. But having said this, it's a fact that if you don't understand the role these raw materials play and the peculiar diplomacy that is generated by these raw materials, there's a lot you miss out in understanding uh, the, the century uh, and all the issues we're living today with decarbonization, other critical minerals. Let's turn to the 1930s when Venezuela became the world's first petrostate under the authoritarian government of oligarch General Juan Vicente Gomez. For more than 40 years, Venezuela was the largest oil exporter in the world, treated like an all-but-colonial holding of a paternalistic United States. How did it become a petrostate in this moment that oil consumption was becoming central to first the United States' economy and then to Europe's, all while in the background, just a little bit to the north, revolutionary Mexico nationalized its huge oil resources? And then what did Venezuela becoming a petrostate do to Venezuela, to, to an economy where exports prior to oil had been led by coffee and cacao? Basically, its oil production was monopolized by three companies, Standard Oil of New Jersey, which was, as you said before, eventually became Exxon, uh, by Shell, and by Gulf Oil. So these were the so-called big three that monopolized Venezuelan production. And there was an authoritarian regime very close to these foreign uh, capitalist uh, interests. It, it could be quite easy to say that, you know, the, the picture of Venezuela you have is a, is a, of a semi-colonial country uh, dominated by these by these foreign uh, companies under the umbrella of, of the protection of, of the United States and to a lesser extent uh, of Great Britain. While on the other hand, in the 30s, you have the emergence of, of this very nationalist uh, oil policy of Mexico, which leads Mexico to nationalize its oil industry in 1938 and to this day, the nationalization, the Mexican oil industry is a, it's a holiday for, for all the Mexicans. Every Mexican knows about it. And it's part of, I would say, of the identity uh, of Mexico as a sovereign country. I think this image, you know, of a very nationalistic Mexico, uh, and on the other hand, uh, of, a, of a semi-colonized Venezuela, it's a bit more complex for various reasons. First of all, uh, in 1929, when Venezuela b- became the largest oil exporter in the world, at the same time, Venezuela basically uh, zeroed its external debt. I mean, if you know something about the history of the relationship between uh, the U.S. and the other former uh, you know, European countries towards Latin American countries, you know that foreign debt 
has been used often as a reason for military intervention and political uh, control. So, so it's already quite meaningful that already by, 1920, by 1929, Venezuela managed to, to free itself from the burden of external debt. And actually, the, the rent that came from oil production, even it was, it was still a very small proportion of the profits that these companies were made, were already helping Venezuela to build an army, uh, to build the first infrastructures. They obviously made rich Juan Vicente Gomez, but they certainly contributed to unify the country. In the, for example, in that the workers that went in Lake Maracaibo to work, they came from different parts of the country. So they, they blended to, to a certain extent, also contributing to generate a Venezuelan culture. So even though the industry was basically entirely controlled by foreign companies, still allowed Venezuela to be in a better position compared to its neighbors, at least in the Caribbean and to many other countries in Latin America. The, the British exercising their, their colonial power in the wake of World War I were the first to establish control over Middle Eastern oil. But then the U.S. insisted on a share of its own, the, the U.S.'s so-called open-door policy. You write, quote, In the wake of World War I, the Middle East was a battleground of economic competition between oil companies, each backed by the menacing shadow of their government protector. How did the U.S. use the leverage it had over exporters in terms of them being able to access the U.S.'s domestic market to secure a share of mostly British Iraqi oil concessions? And then how in Persia, by contrast, did Britain manage to maintain exclusive control, while in Saudi Arabia, it was the United States that did? What did the ultimate settlement look like once the colonial powers and their national oil majors, once they had divided up all the region's oil concessions amongst themselves? And how, how did that both make and reflect the colonial order in the Middle East? The, the issue is that after the end of the, of the First World War, many people in, in, in the U.S. government were actually convinced that the U.S. was running out of oil. And when you looked at uh, the world outside the United States, it seemed that the British were in a pretty good position because they had... Uh, access to, to the Middle East. Uh, they had basically the most important position in Venezuela. The, there was Shell in Indonesia. So most of the most uh, attractive oil reserves seemed to be in the hands or tied to the British Empire. So one of the policies uh, of the US government after the First World War was Let's get our own share of, uh, of the reservoirs in the Middle East. And the way to do so was to menace at least Shell, the most important probably at the time, uh, international oil company, not to be able to benefit from the U.S. market had not the British opened up, allowed the open door policy in the, in the Arab territories of the former Ottoman Empire, and in particular in Iraq. So, you know, after a long uh, negotiations, uh, the end game was uh, in 1928 when uh, 
there was the formation of this Iraqi petroleum uh, company, which was a concession that had shareholders, the British, the French, but also uh, a group of American companies was allowed to have 23 point something percent share uh, of IPC. So it was the first time that the, the, the US companies were allowed to, to enter the game of Middle East oil after that oil had actually been found in 1927 in Iraq. At the same time, U.S. companies massively invested uh, in Venezuela. And by the end of the 20s, they, they were the most important producers uh, of oil in Venezuela. And then the last uh, success, if you will, uh, uh, of U.S. oil capitalism was to be granted the concession over oil in Saudi Arabia in 1933. At the time, nobody actually knew that Saudi Arabia would become uh, what we know Saudi Arabia is today. So I don't think the, I'm not sure, but I don't think that his news really made the headlines. But we know today that that, that was a bit, uh, you know, that, that was a stroke of luck. As to Iran, you know, Iran, there was a British company, Anglo-Persian oil company, that was actually majority owned by the British state that had a concession that covered the entire territory of Persia. So there was no really no reason to, to allow U.S. companies uh, to produce oil in Iran, at least from the point of view of the British. And you describe an alternative path in terms of Saudi Arabia not taken here. A remarkable story that I had not been aware of, where the Roosevelt administration considered taking a direct state stake in Saudi oil. It's a really strange and interesting window into a sort of New Deal inflected empire building, but it didn't happen thanks to business opposition. How did that play out and how did the U.S. role in Saudi Arabia shape and reflect the U.S.'s emergence as a global hegemon that was supplanting the British Empire? So this, I think, should be put a little bit into context in the sense that as you know better than I do, the 1930s were in general a time when economic policy uh, shifted uh, in the sense of, uh, of a strong, stronger at least role of the state in the economy. And this manifested itself as the New Deal. And it had an appendix, if you will, in the oil sector because after the Great Depression, the prices of oil had dropped remarkably and it seemed that the oil industry would suffer, people would get fired. Uh, the, the material of the barrel was actually more expensive than, than the gasoline it, it contained. So, so it was, you know, the, the, the oil industry was falling apart. So part of the solution came from reinforcing the role of the states, and in particular uh, in Texas, the, the, the most important uh, oil-producing state in the United States, the, uh, an organization called the Texas Great Drug Commission came in and basically was allowed to decide how much oil every single oil field uh, in Texas could, could produce. And this action by the state 
it generated huge juridical controversies also with the, with the Supreme Court of the U.S., but it, was, it, it, it allowed the value of oil, to, to the economic value of oil, to be, to be safeguarded. And it also allowed, in a way, to, to avoid waste uh, because the expansion of natural, the use of natural gas in the United States is also due to the choices uh, of the 1930s because the Texas Rate Grow Commission forced companies not to flare gas, but to actually use it. And the U.S. was one of the first countries to massively use uh, natural gas as an energy source. So this is just to say that the 30s were a time of state intervention contested, but existent uh, in the oil sector and the creation of the Petroleum Reserve Corporation during the Second World War, uh, which was a brainchild of uh, the Secretary of Interior Ike's, was a bit part of this idea that there needed to be a, a state role in, in, in managing this crucial uh, uh, strategic uh, energy sector. So in 1944, Ike's uh, advanced the proposal that this strategic reserve corporation would get a share of Aramco, actually a controlling share of Aramco. Aramco was the, the, the concession, uh, the consortium that had acquired the concession in Saudi Arabia. So basically, the U.S. government, through this state corporation, would uh, produce oil and transport oil and even build a pipeline to export oil towards the Mediterranean and potentially to Europe. This was very dangerous for this very small group of oil companies because it would have allowed a state to have a say in, in, in you know, how much oil was produced, at what price oil would be sold, and also a knowledge, if you will, of, of how the concessions worked in the, in, in the Middle East. And the knowledge of this you know, is, is very valuable for, for, for international oil company. You know, to have a monopoly of knowledge of how business works is a valuable thing. For Eventually, the opposition... Was, was very strong. Ike's was accused of being, uh, you know, nearly a communist uh, for, for presenting this, uh, this project. And the whole uh, project failed. And the solution to the need of huge investments in Saudi Arabia to develop these fields was basically for the largest uh, oil company in the US, uh, Standard Oil of New Jersey, Exxon eventually, to enter the consortium. So, so Standard Oil of New Jersey became part of Aramco in, uh, in 1948 and contributed to the expansion of Saudi production. I think we should pause here to emphasize this, this distinction between the U.S. domestic market dominated by tons of smaller independent oil companies and these big U.S. oil majors operating abroad. How did the U.S. end up with this domestic concessionary system that's so different from what the U.S. and the U.K. and their oil majors, what they insisted on imposing as almost the natural order of things abroad? I mean, the key issue here is uh, basically property of land. The U.S. 
uh, and Russia before the Bolshevik revolutions were the two only countries, leave aside the colonized world, but the two only independent countries where the owner of land is also the owner of subsoil rights. In the rest of the countries, the owner of land is never the owner of subsoil rights. The, the, the owner of subsoil rights is the state. So this generated this very peculiar governance of, of the oil sector in the United States, where you have basically private property of uh, land and oil, which is then leased to, to companies. So it's very, since the owners of land are so many, it's very hard to monopolize production of oil uh, in the United States. I mean, I was struck when I visited once an oil field in the United Arab Emirates. You don't see wells. Basically, you see, you know, a couple of wells uh, and, the, and the United Arab Emirates produces, uh, you know, so much more <laughs> than most uh, 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 of the U.S. regions. But if you visit an oil reserve in an oil producing area of the United States, you see thousands of wells. Right. So that, that, that this produces a totally different landscape uh, of the United States. So the, the, so the images of these wells, one after the other, that's an image that is really related to the United States and it's hard to find elsewhere. And it's related on the property of land, which is very fragmented and it's very hard to monopolize it. While in these countries, you know, the, these countries that were politically subordinate to a certain extent, uh, Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia. But on the other hand, the state had monopoly over subsoil rights. So the states could decide basically to allow a foreign company a concession whose extent was the entire territory uh, of the countries. Now, this could be seen obviously as something that empowered these companies because, you know, they gave them access to enormous uh, territories and huge reserves. But on the other hand, it's also possibly a more rational way of exploiting uh, these reserves because often these reserves are, are, are units, which is, you know, it, it's technically wrong to fragment in thousands of different uh, land ownership. Also, eventually, the fact that these states had one actor they had to face, obviously, you know, it made these capitalist actors very strong because, you know, they, they withheld production. They had, they could do a lot of arms twisting. But on the other hand, you know, once these countries took over, they took over entirely <laughs> an industry that was already coherently set up. Yeah, it's sort of complex because the initial setup was one that benefited the oil majors and their imperial colonial patron governments. But on the other hand, it was what allowed for a form of resource nationalization that's incomprehensible in the United States. The reason why this is complex in the United States, I mean, there's two reasons here. The first reason is the United States is actually one of the few countries in the world where there have not been 
state-owned companies. So there was regulation and very heavy regulation, as we have seen with the Texas Railroad Commission, but there was never direct state ownership of companies in uh, energy sectors. So this is different from other countries in the world. Most of the, uh, the rest of the countries in, in the world normally had state companies taking over at one point or the other. But the second difference, as, as we said before, is actually the, the ownership of land. It, it must be something that has to do with the way the United States was shaped as a nation, you know, building one state after the other uh, with the role of landowners in actually building up the country. It's like the basic organization of American settler colonialism. Yeah. And how settler individual settlers and their claims to private property interacted with the expansion of the settler colonial state westward. The governance of land in the United States is obviously related to the way the United States was formed through expansion. But just if, if you want to grab how favorable were the conditions for oil production from these oil multinationals in the countries of the Middle East in particular, you have to think that owners of land in the United States, they get paid by companies at the minimum, a royalty of one-eighth of the value of a barrel of oil. So it's one-eighth is, I think, 12.5%. And, and this is, a, you know, a small landlord of a small, of a small uh, piece of land is able to force a company that wants to produce oil in that particular, at least a royalty of 12.5%. In many of these countries, they didn't have royalties. So, I, I mean, weirdly, the position of a small landowner in the United States towards oil companies was in the 20s and early 30s stronger than the position of, a, of, of, the, of, of the state ruling over an entire country facing uh, a, a, an international oil company. So, so, so you know, that, that tells you a little bit. <laughs> And, and just briefly, an added layer of complexity there, the Texas Railroad Commission's response to this Depression-era oil glut was a level of state regulation in terms of controlling production that the U.S. and U.K. and the oil majors certainly did not want to export abroad. Well, of course, because the, the bottom line of an institution as the Texas Railroad Commission, in a way, is controlling production. So having a say in the quantity of oil that is produced. If countries outside the United States were able to control production, you know, they would have an enormous leverage towards these oil companies because through con basically through controlling production, you also control the profits. If you allow companies to produce more in certain times, they will make more money. If you allow them to produce less, they will make less money. And also it was very important since, since these companies had interlocking ownerships of most of the consortiums. So let's see the same companies that were in IPC. Some of them were also in Aramco. 
others were, were eventually uh, became part of the consortium uh, in Iran in 1954. So it was very important for them to say, let's say to the government of Saudi Arabia or Iran, if you want to increase taxes, you know, you will simply shift production from Iran to Saudi Arabia or from Iraq to, to Iran. And that was a way to, to convince governments to withhold a certain uh, decisions that would be considered harmful, either in terms of taxation levels of employment of nationals or investments and so on and so forth. So controlling production is a key political issue. A key turning point in this history takes place in 1948, when Venezuela established a new 50-50 revenue model that would later become the norm across the entire oil exporting world. What accounts for this relative Venezuelan assertiveness, if not if not radicalism? Why, why did resource nationalism sweep the country in the 1940s, first under President General Isaias Medina Angarita, and then intensify as the social democratic government of Ramulu Betancourt took power in 1945 after this military junta overthrew the general in a coup? What I argue in my book following uh, Venezuelan historians, uh, or at least some of them have written, is a bit the other way around. So, so what I describe as you know, the most important uh, nationalist achievement when it comes to oil legislation, the uh, oil law of 1943, so we're in the middle uh, of the Second World War, Venezuela is crucially important to the U.S. war efforts. There is the good neighborhood policy in the United States, so it's important for the United States to, to keep uh, in good terms with, with, with Latin American countries. And uh, this oil law that is written by some of the Venezuelan technocrats that have been working in the oil sectors now for decades is quite revolutionary because it establishes, for example, that you know, it increases the royalties to 16%. So royalties are not really taxes. It's something you have to pay as a cost even before paying taxes. So if you increase royalties, it's a, it's a big cost on, on oil companies. The government of Venezuela would take, in the end, 60% of the rent, leaving 40% of the oil rent to, to, to the companies. But what's more important is that this is the first time officially the government of Venezuela claimed to have fiscal sovereignty. What's fiscal sovereignty? The ability to decide whatever taxation level you want on whatever company is in your country, because that's what a government does, right? It can and this decide. is in contrast to the sanctity of contracts. Yes and no, in the sense that deciding on a new oil law is different from changing the contract. Obviously, foreign companies could argue that this was a change in the, in the, in the rules of the game. But that's what new, 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 new laws are. Uh, it was a change in the, it was also favorable for, 
for other things, it was also favorable to companies because, for example, it extended their concessions for, for a very long time. It created a, a, a general framework in which concessions were all different one from the other. By then, they, were all, they needed to be all the same. Why am I saying this? Because then in 1948, there is the first democratic elected government in Venezuela. In this government, Acción Democrática, so, so the largest democratic party of Venezuela, which was a party that was very close to trade unions, or at least part of trade unions, um, they, they perform very well. And Juan Pablo Perez Alfonso, who is the oil expert uh, of Acción Democrática, of the government, of the key democratic party of Venezuela, becomes the Minister of Development, also in charge of the oil sector. So, so since this is the first democratic government of Venezuela, it is also important for Democrats in Venezuela to argue that the first democratic government of Venezuela needs also to be the government that did, you know, took the action that was more favorable to the interests uh, uh, of Venezuelans in uh, opposition to foreign interests and to foreign companies. But in fact, that's not what we see in the archives. There was never a big opposition. It, it, this was new, not a new law. This was basically a new regulation enacted by this new democratic government uh, of Venezuela and conceived also by by Perez Alfonso, but actually in a dialogue with, uh, with, with oil companies and with the U.S. administration, this new regulation basically established that whatever happened to the price of oil, to the cost of production and so on and so forth, there would have to be a 50-50 profit split. So 50% of the profits would go to the, to the country, to the government, to the state, and 50% to the oil companies. But if you think more about this, this was very favorable to the companies because, you know, it basically it set a roof over the amount of rent that the government and the state could collect. And the roof was 50%. At least in principle, it could not get more than, than, than 50%. And at that time, with that 50%, you know, the, the companies, the foreign companies were making a huge amount of money. It was also money that by paying to the, to the Venezuelan government, they could uh, detract from uh, tax payments in the United States. So it, it didn't cost them uh, so much. It was like a wedding between uh, the Venezuelan state and foreign capitalist companies. So I don't think it, to a certain extent, it was a less innovative law compared to the law in 1943 that was enacted by a, a dictator, another, you know, uh, it was a populist uh, military government, but it was a military government, where Acción Democrática was more, you know, was different, was in the way to use that money. So the argument was, let's use that money for, to increase wages, to generate employment, to invest uh, in refineries, to industrialize the countries and so on and so forth. So Acción Democrática and the Venezuelan Democrats 
were not necessarily more nationalistic. They were more developmentalist, more. Yeah, I would say. Especially in the vision of Juan Pablo Perez Alfonso, who had this whole critique of the dominant oil system and what it did to the petrostate within the the world system. Juan Pablo Perez Alfonso, uh, so if you think that oil has been uh, from, uh, from, from 1960 the most important primary energy source in the world, you know, Perez Alfonso is one of the key intellectuals and politicians in general of the 20th century, meaning that there should be a small place at least for Perez Alfonso in a textbook. He played a very significant role in his country in the creation of OPEC and in thinking about natural resources. But his way of thinking evolved very significantly from uh, 1948 to the 1970s. So it's very hard to say what is Perez Alfonso's thoughts in general, because he went through different phases. In this phase, so 1948, the way he thought about the oil industry is this is a public service as other public services. So the companies that play a role in this public service, they're entitled also only to a certain defined profit margin. Let's say 8%. I think he said 8%. Other times he said 15% return on, on investments. All the rest should be uh, recouped by the state to use it in a way that is basically the way of social democracy. So, you know, to build a welfare state, to, 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 to develop the industries and so on and so forth. This is not maybe the most innovative phase. It is innovative if you think that, you know, today uh, I was looking at Guyana. Uh, Guyana, which is the, one of the countries that now is emerging as a key oil exporter, they take 10% of, of the oil rent. So, Really, in certain countries, it seems like the history <laughs> and the experience uh, of these uh, crucial figures uh, of oil exporting countries have, has been uh, uh, forgotten. But the Paris Alfonso of 1948, I don't think, is the most innovative Paris Alfonso. I think later he would become even more innovative. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. The Dig is a podcast produced in conjunction with Jacobin Magazine. And yes, Jacobin is a print publication, not just a place for online commentary, but long-form serious print journalism and socialist analysis. The magazine is released quarterly and runs around 160 pages, filled with award-winning design and the ideas that movements need to thrive. Dig listeners can join more than 70,000 Jacobin subscribers supporting this vital work for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's very extensive archive. First-time subscribers only, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin. The rise of petrostates and petrocapitalists was, was premised, of course, on the rise of oil-consuming countries in the industrialized metropole of the world system. First the U.S., 
and then Britain, and then after World War II, increasingly continental Europe, which rapidly transitioned from coal to oil. Why and how did did American patterns of energy consumption become the ideal model for the entire world? Why, Why did Europe in particular make that transition? And what role did the U.S. play in pushing Europe to do it? Because, of course, this is all amid the Marshall Plan and the onset of the Cold War, which which in Western and Southern Europe meant a all out effort to undermine and marginalize communists. Yeah. So you could argue that there are certain instances in which the U.S. influence on uh, forcing, but at least uh, helping, <laughs> let's say, the, the use of oil uh, as an energy source has been prominent. Maybe you could argue that the development of, of, of car manufacturing uh, of Fordism in general, the car being uh, a symbol of Fordism was a U.S. invention to a certain extent that then spread to other industrialized countries. And obviously, since the expansion of the car industry, at least in the United States, went in parallel with the expansion of the oil industry, you could argue that that was a, you know, a contribution of the United States to the, to the development uh, of oil and its derivatives like gasoline as an energy source. There's other people, since you, since you, you mentioned uh, Europe, there has been quite a lot, even in, 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 in the 70s already, I think a former prime minister of Italy called Romano Prodi, uh, who was also the head uh, of the European Commission for a while, wrote a book in the 1970s basically arguing that the Marshall Plan, because it financed the building of refineries in, uh, in, in Western Europe, uh, and the import of oil basically, to a certain extent, forced Western European countries that up to then were basically reliant on internal energy source, which is coal, to, to, to open up to, to, to oil imports. So you, you could argue that there is, a, there, is a, there is a U.S. role because of the car industry, because of the importance of oil majors, of U.S. oil majors, because the language of oil is basically all, uh, you know, it's all American words, you know, the oil barrel. Uh, uh, if, you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you talk to people of the oil industry, they all use English words, even though maybe Russians would argue, you know, you, uh, at the end of the 19th century, we produce more oil than the United States, but mo- most of the language uh, of the industry is an American. So you, you could argue that there's a, obviously a strong role of the United States. But I wouldn't push it to the point of uh, the United States basically forcing the rest of the world to 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 rely uh, on this industry. And also, it I would argue, at least my experience as an Italian, that the consumption patterns in different areas of the world uh, are also profoundly different. So it's true that the car industry. You know, developed throughout the industrialized countries, but it's also true that cars are not all the same. So if one looked at the Italian cars until the 60s, you know, they were very different. They looked very different from the American cars. 
if you look at the way cities were shaped in Italy, they were very different from, from, from American cities and, uh, you know, the role of suburbs, the role of uh, train, VS, uh, uh, highways. So th- there are important differences. But I agree with you that if, if that's the argument, you know, the, the U.S. did play a role in the creation and the expansion uh, of this uh, particular industry. Maybe it's the role that China is going to play in the in the expansion of, of an industry based on renewable energies. Who knows? We should pause here to emphasize the role and position of oil workers from from Venezuela and Mexico to Iran, Iraq and Saudi Arabia. The, this militancy, in your account, really explodes as the Great Depression sent raw material prices plummeting everywhere, not just oil, but across the board. And it fueled Mexico's nationalization of its oil and reached perhaps its most consequential point in Iran when oil worker and communist militancy pushed the government to nationalize its oil on the eve of Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh taking power. The the events, of course, that lead directly to the U.S. and U.K. orchestrated 1953 coup that brought the Shah into full control. But this labor militancy was, I think it's fair to say, present almost everywhere significant amounts of oil were being produced. What was it about the way that the oil industry proletarianized diverse groups of people and about the position of the oil industry that led to such militancy? And what impact did that militancy have on governments of the vast majority of countries, which which unlike Mexico at that point, were still resisting or not interested or whatever in nationalization, but but nonetheless began to move toward a more confrontational stance vis-a-vis the oil majors and their rich country patrons? Yeah. So, first of all, I tried to, you know, even though the entire book is mostly on technocrats and and elites, as much as possible, I tried to emphasize how these elites were also constrained by movements, you know, cultural movements and social movements that were below them, that pressured them towards certain uh, decisions. And uh, in doing so, in a way, I'd say what I said is a bit in contrast with a book that is became a reference point. I also use it in my classes. So I think it's a, it's, it's a very good book uh, called uh, Carbon Democracy. Uh, by Tim Mitchell, because basically the argument of that book is that when coal was a key energy source, since the coal industry was heavily unionized and for the way the coal industry worked, for the way coal was transported, for the way workers were in control of how coal was produced, basically workers were able to democratize society. You know, they had a way to influence their governments by directly controlling or having a role in the production of these key energy resources. So when the Western world shifts to oil for the way oil is produced, for the way the oil is commercialized, for the countries that are protagonists of oil production, this eventually leads to more authoritarianism, uh, to this idea of the, the ever-expanding economy with no, with no limits, uh, 
and in a way to a de-democratization of society. So what I tried to point out in the book is that the history of oil is also a history of social activism. And you point out that this social activism is true, is true everywhere, from Venezuela with the oil strikes of 1936, 20,000 workers on strike for the first time in the history uh, of, of their country, to Iran, uh, you know, the strikes and the wave of protests that lead to nationalizations by Mossadegh. Uh, but even in Saudi Arabia, the 1950s is uh, a time of uh, profound activism by, by even with the request of forming uh, uh, trade unions. And this activism still persists until 1967 when uh, the workers of Aramco take on the headquarters of Aramco to protest uh, after the Six Days War, uh, the defeat of Arab countries. So, and obviously, you know, workers in the oil fields were protagonists of, uh, uh, of the revolution against the Shah. The, the, I, I, would, I would argue that Oil workers in Iran in 1978 uh, made the revolution against the Shah possible by blocking oil production. That's the more general framework of the history of the 20th century. From the 30s to the 70s, is it's a time where, as Charles Mayer described, it's the, the, the workers' movements are a significant effective, powerful, countervailing force to capitalism. And this happens in every country of the world, <laughs> including in, uh, in, in oil exporting countries. The only difference is that in oil exporting countries, these worker movements basically expect from the governments that the governments take control, they take a greater control, direct control of, of the oil industry. But then, even though it's uh, counterintuitive, this eventually paradoxically leads to a problem for the workers' movements because once oil exporting countries take control of the industry by nationalizing it. And they all do from Venezuela. Chavez did not nationalize the Venezuelan oil industry. Venezuela nationalized the oil industry in 1975 with a democratic government. Saudi Arabia takes full of control of the industry, Algeria, Iraq, you name it. There's, there's not even one of these countries that does not take control of the industry. But then the problem is that it's harder for the workers' movement to take on state companies than it is to take on foreign multinationals. So it, it, it might be paradoxical, but if nationalization does not necessarily reinforce workers' movements. To a certain extent, they, they weaken them in that their acts become... Uh, in a way, they, 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 they endanger national security, which is symbolized by the role of these state-owned companies. An extraordinary contradiction, given that it's precisely these oil workers' movements, as 
we'll see as we continue in this interview, that are propelling nationalization forth. Yeah. A a quick note for listeners, you can find my two-part interview with Timothy Mitchell on his book, Carbon Democracy, in the Dig archives by visiting thedigradio.com. Excellent. It's a really good one. (laughs) Oil worker militancy took hold amongst this just remarkably transnational workforce, drawing workers in from across the region. How did that militancy shape and how was it in turn shaped by the ascendance of a diverse array of radical anti-colonial ideologies across the Middle East, including one, the Arab nationalism embodied by Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser, whose influence and prestige across the Arab world during this period is really hard to overstate, two, Baathism, and three, communism. And how did each of these ideologies separately and in combination respond to the conditions and positions of Middle Eastern petrostates and the grievances and aspirations of their peoples? So uh, as you point out, in the late uh, 50s to the 1960s is a time in which various uh, social and political movements from the Middle East to Latin America manifest themselves. So you have Nasserism, which is a kind of vague, relatively vague ideology that anyway, to a certain extent, is based on the idea of a stronger role for the state and of Pan-Arab cooperation. You have Baathism, that also an ideology that is quite hard to define, but even here it's premised uh, on a strong role uh, for the state, uh, the the overcoming of former uh, conservative uh, social uh, banks, uh, the overcoming of of the nation state, you know, you're building broader alliances. In Venezuela, you have social democracy, but you also have minoritarian communist groups which wage uh, armed conflict uh, even. uh, For example, in Venezuela, obviously, there is a distinction between those as Perez Alfonso who still think, at least in the early 60s, that you have to deal with uh, these international companies and those who think, you know, let's get over with them, let's just nationalize and let's kick them out of the country. And that these would be the more radical uh, militants. But let's say that the both in, in the Middle East even in the countries that we perceive as more conservative, such as Saudi Arabia, these social and political uh, groups exist uh, and exert their influence. In Saudi Arabia, a symbol of these particular instances when it comes to oil is Abdallah Tariki. The Red Sheikh. There's a whole Red Sheikh who was the head of the old directorate general when OPEC was created. So he was possibly with the other fellow we were talking about, Perez Alfonso in Venezuela, the other key figure for, for, for the creation of OPEC. So this is just to say that the political atmosphere until the 1960s and, and 1970s is quite different from the one that we're looking at uh, today, there's social mobilization, there's uh, a lot of uh, public debate on newspapers, on leaflets. And so there's 
trade union mobilization and so on and so forth. Nasserism is so powerful that Egypt and Syria from 1958 to 1961 form the United Arab Republic, a unified country, something I think a lot of listeners outside the region might not be aware of. And the appeal of all these ideologies and figures like Nasser, it means that we we cannot project back the Saudi Arabia, for example, that we know today as this inherently reactionary regime. That is not necessarily all set in stone at this point. As you mentioned under King Saud before the more conservative Prince Faisal takes power, his top leader on oil is Al-Tariqi, known as the Anasser sympathizer, known as the Red Sheik. And you have this just incredibly much more politically open, contentious kingdom than the one we know today. Workers' movements calling for representative government a free prince's movement doing the same? It's a very different world and region. You know, a question you could ask yourself is, since Nasser becomes this larger-than-life political figure for the entire Arab world after 1956, after the success uh, of the nationalization of the Suez Canal, and since uh, uh, he promotes the creation of uh, and the convening of an Arab oil congress because Nasser is convinced that uh, oil should be one of the key industries and one of the key ways in which the Arab world would uh, manage to become more autonomous, to develop, and so on and so forth. So why is it <laughs> that... Uh, we have not witnessed the creation of a, an Arab oil uh, organization. I think this is an interesting question because it says a lot about exactly what a petro state is and what it is not. So Egypt is not a petro state. And that's why uh, you couldn't create an organization based in, uh, in Cairo, even though in 1959, Nasser helps uh, convene this Arab oil congress with the idea that, you know, Cairo would become the capital, you know, way of discussing oil issues. But eventually, even the people that met in Cairo on the first time you had the Venezuelans that, you know, joined with a very big delegation, this Arab oil congress, uh, and also the, the Iranians they visited. But eventually the organization of, of, of oil exporters was not based in Cairo. But was based, uh, you know, was uh, for the first time convened in Baghdad because it had to group only countries that had similar interests as being relevant oil exporting countries. And that, that did not include Egypt. Even though within these countries, there were people that were uh, Nasserists and were influenced by Nasser. But the logic of an organization of oil exporters, if you will, was stronger than the political and cultural logic of the influence of Nasserism in, in building a, you know, a pan-Arab oil organization, if you will. How did the U.S. establishing dominance over Saudi oil spur the British interest in the oil resources of what until independence were known as the Trucial States, the kingdoms under British protection that would later become the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, Ras al-Khaimah, Sharjah, and Abu Dhabi. And where did the other Gulf kingdoms fit in 
Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait, and Oman. Because it's hard to imagine today how sparsely populated, poor, and marginal these polities were compared to what we see today. So we, we were talking about this phase of the end of the 1950s. At the time, you had Kuwait, which was not yet uh, an independent state, which was the British protectorate, which, which was a significant oil producer. You had Saudi Arabia, but most of the rest uh, of the shakedowns, if you will, of the Arabian Peninsula had not become uh, important. Uh, you know, they were interesting because people thought there would be research, but they, they, they had not become producers. And uh, one thing that maybe is mentioned in my book, uh, and since I've seen it because I've lived in Abu Dhabi for four years, in 1960 in Abu Dhabi, which was the Emirate where among the crucial states, the largest quantity of oil uh, would be found, the largest reservoirs were located. In 1960, oil production had not started, and that, and that was just one building. You know, one permanent construction, which was the fort of the uh, of the Emir of Abu Dhabi, and the rest of the so-called town was basically a group of uh, tents or non-permanent uh, <laughs> constructions for uh, uh, fishermen for a population that must have been uh, 1,000 to, to 2,000, uh, uh, very small, very marginal, in a way a backwater of, uh, uh, at the time of the, of the British colonial empire. Dubai was already a, a, a commercial hub but also there we're talking about something quite uh, quite small. Obviously, as the 1960s is one of the times, you know, when we talk about the Anthropocene, we're talking about this massive expansion and a massive acceleration of the use of fossil fuels from the 1950s onwards and the 1960s is a moment of huge expansion of, of production then all these places become more interesting and then uh, investments start and eventually Abu Dhabi becomes uh, an oil producer and eventually also joins later OPEC at the end of the 60s. Stepping back how did the expansion of the oil frontier from Latin America to the Middle East shape a region and the states within it that were still almost entirely under either formal or informal colonial control. Is it a coincidence that Middle Eastern petrostates, at least before a wave of nationalist coups began in the 1950s, is it a coincidence that they were organized initially as monarchies? I think it would be fair if my colleagues uh, saw what I said about the Middle East as being too deterministic and uh, you know, even possibly wrong. I also have to point out that I did visit the National Museum of Saudi Arabia, and I was struck by the fact that it ends with, with, with the beginning uh, of oil production uh, of Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia. So basically, it's like the story of Saudi Arabia ends <laughs> instead of starts 
with, with, with oil production and there's no history of Saudi Arabia after oil, oil production starts. Does the fact that these countries eventually shaped their, uh, their political system in the way they did, basically being absolute monarchies, except for the case of Kuwait that actually has a parliament, which is quite influential. Is this connected to the rise of the oil industry and to the influence of uh, foreign uh, powers and in particular the British Empire, which at the time, I mean, until the Second World War at least, uh, was, uh, was the prevailing foreign actor in the region? You know, I think it would be fair to argue that these foreign companies basically decided or were forced to or just gave <laughs> the their 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 paid their taxes to the monarch is obviously something that reinforced the monarchies of the regions because you know, they had financial possibilities to you know, build the army and to build the, 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 their security system and so on and so forth. It is also possible to argue that the, the shape of the territories that define Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates has been, at least has interacted with the shape of the concessions. So... The, the necessity to define specific boundaries in order to be able to pay this or that landlord has been significant in shaping the boundaries in a territory that, let's not forget it, is often a territory in which boundaries are very hard from a geographical point of view to define. You know, you, you're talking about deserts of at times shifting mountains of sand. So how do you place a boundary there? Obviously, the necessity to determine where concessions were did play uh, did play a role. And a territory, just to emphasize that until World War I, aside from Persia, later Iran, was all under Ottoman control. These were not separate countries. This was an empire. I think the Soviets would argue they, they were never really part of the, of the, of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but anyways, you know, most of the, obviously, of the Arab uh, territories, of at least parts of the Arabian, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, yes. At the same time that the U.S. and British were plotting against Mossadegh in response to Iran's nationalization of oil, Britain's labor government at home was nationalizing industry. Ultimately, and we'll get into this period later, but ultimately neoliberalism would break down this divide between the social democratic policies allowed in the metropole versus the sort of raw capitalist dominance that neocolonial powers imposed upon the periphery. This is something I discussed a while back with Kojo Karam on the podcast. But what did the, the existence of this distinction between what was possible and even even normal in the metropole versus the colonial world, what did that divide reveal about how the world system was developing and, and I guess more generally, energies placed within it in terms of liberal capitalist democracies requiring these backstage zones of, of authoritarian energy expropriation? 
So yes, obviously there's a contradiction in, in, in the Labour government in uh, winning the elections in Britain and uh, promoting this massive wave of nationalization of the commanding heights of the British economy, including obviously the energy sector where they nationalize the coal sector. Even though arguably you could say they did not not, not nationalize the oil industry, which had been uh, kind of nationalized by Churchill uh, and then was left untouched by the Labour government. But at the same time that they did so, they protected uh, the interests uh, of Anglo-Iranian oil company in Iran, even when uh, in the face of massive protests coming from uh, uh, workers in Abadan, so the, the largest refinery in the world at the time in the island uh, of Abadan with 40,000 workers. I would argue first that labor politicians were not always happy with the way Anglo-Iranian oil company was behaving itself. And I'd actually thought that Anglo-Iranian oil company, you know, had to be more proactive when it came to workers' rights. Not everything that Iranians were asking for were wrong for, 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 for labor politicians. But, you know, aside from the fact that eventually the government shifted from labor to Churchill once more after nationalizations, and aside from the racism that was, I think, a prevailing cultural feature of every single politician in uh, every country in the West, um, so aside from this, Anglo-Iranian company was so important to the macroeconomic state of British finances that it was actually hard. It wasn't easy to do without it. So, so, so it was by far the largest company in the, in the, in fact, it was called the company. I mean, and if you said the company, everybody knew <laughs> it was, it was Anglo version of company. And uh, the, the revenues, uh, the, these massive revenues in hard currency in dollars were crucially important for a country that lacked, as many other countries of Western Europe lacked dollars uh, at the time. So it, it was actually hard for Britain to do without the benefits of controlling uh, Persian oil, basically. Having said this, yes, <laughs> it was very contradictory to, 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 to promote nationalization in the metropole and at the same time fight uh, nationalizations in countries that were politically subordinate at this to a certain extent uh, to Great Britain. But since you mentioned neoliberalism, but I would argue that you know neoliberalism was was never really a dominant uh, political or cultural uh, approach 
in the countries of the global south or in the countries of uh, uh, so-called third world or uh, the extractive provinces uh, of, of, of capital. And in fact, the rise of neoliberalism in the, in the West, if you will, symbolized by Thatcher in the UK and uh, what it did to the oil sector in the UK, it went never in parallel with a similar rise of neoliberalism in oil exporting countries. None of these countries ever uh, privatized their uh, oil companies. They did not renounce to the taxes that came from extracting oil. Maybe the only country that did was the, was Russia after the Soviet Union. But as we've seen today, it was a relatively short process only of the 1980s. And then to a certain extent, Russia went back to, a, to an approach, which is not a neoliberal approach, is the approach of a natural resource exporter trying to keep that sector under control. This brings us to OPEC's founding in 1960, five years after the seminal anti-colonial meeting in Bandung, Indonesia, and amid the rapid decolonization of French, British, and Belgian Africa. The colonial order is being entirely upended at this moment. What was it about that moment in history, though, in the history of the world system in general, and also the oil system in particular, that finally pushed these countries together to found OPEC? And what what role, in terms of, of bringing these five countries together, did Venezuela's early initiatives to foster oil exporter dialogue and solidarity, what role did it play? The general uh, political atmosphere uh, of the late 1950s is an atmosphere where you know, decolonization is, uh, in a way, the wave uh, of the time, 1960 is the year where many countries in Africa become uh, independent. In 1955, there had been the Bandung uh, meeting, the first uh, international conference uh, of uh, Afro-Asian countries denouncing uh, colonialism and to a certain extent uh, wanting to advance a non-white cooperation to set the rules of the game, even though their economic requests were very vague. I mean, that, that was a bit the, 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 the political atmosphere of, of the time. And in such a, a political atmosphere, there are things that happened in, in the oil market, specifically in 1959 and 1960, that are considered by these uh, oil exporting states as uh, a declaration of war <laughs> on the part of uh, oil companies and some uh, key oil producers such as the United States. So the first decision on the part of the United States is in 1959, the United States implements what are called uh, mandatory import quotas. So it basically decides that it is not going to import I don't remember the exact figure, but it's something like more than 9% of, of, of its consumption. 
this decision by the U.S. government basically means that the United States as a market, which is a huge market for oil exporters all over the world, is becoming a closed market in which it is difficult to enter. So these countries are now in competition one with the other. And to make matters worse, at least for Venezuela, the U.S. basically does not apply this system of quotas to, to Canada, for example, which is considered you know, reliable, huh? but it applies it to, to, to Venezuela. So now Venezuela has to struggle to, you know, it's producing more and more oil and has to struggle to find markets and potentially has to face the competition of oil producers of the Middle East for these shrinking markets in the United States. But also the other reason why, 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 it's, why it's significant that the, the, the U.S. imposes these quotas is that the price of oil in the U.S. was basically the standard for the price of oil everywhere. So the price of oil everywhere was equaled with the price of oil in the United States. That was very important because it set a floor. So it said prices will not go below that level because below that level, the US producers will not accept it. So it gave a price, it, it, it allowed to have a price structure. So with the, with the creation of import quotas, mandatory import quotas, the United States reduces the market basically undermines this price structure. And in fact, the, the year later, in 1960, these oligopoly of companies, so the first is Exxon, they reduce the posted price of oil. So it's uh, uh, the posted price is, is, is a tax reference price that is used to pay taxes to, 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 to local governments. In practice, this means that since, if you remember, we had this 50-50 profit sharing, if the posted price is $2 a barrel, this 50-50 profit sharing is, is applied to the price of $2 a barrel. So, so if you reduce the posted price, it means you're gonna, governments are gonna get uh, less money for the same barrel of oil. So the combination of the two speeds up a process which is already happening of dialogue between Venezuela and Middle Eastern countries. And eventually this group of five countries you, you, you were talking about, they convene uh, in, uh, in September 1960 in Baghdad and they decide on the creation of, of, of this organization. But at the time, what is their number one issue? Their number one issue objective is to avoid the repetition of a situation in which the oil companies can simply reduce the price of oil without any negotiations with the governments of oil exporting countries, considering that the governments of these oil exporting countries by then have become entirely dependent from the revenues from the exports of oil. So if you reduce those revenues, that might create, that might generate massive social problems, political problems, protests, and so on and so forth.
This is the first of a two-part interview with Giuliano Garavini. Giuliano Garavini teaches international history at Roma Tre University in Rome. He's the author of After Empires, European Integration, Decolonization, and the Challenge from the Global South, 1957 to 1986, and The Rise and Fall of OPEC in the 20th Century. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, capitalist production only develops the technique and the degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the worker. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. We are recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theorio Francos and Ben Maybe. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on a platform such as iTunes, please also rate and review us. We have also been having trouble on Spotify, even though we have tons of very positive ratings on Spotify. Please take a moment, if you have Spotify, to look up The Dig on Spotify, listen to The Dig on Spotify, and rate The Dig on Spotify. And then you can go back to whatever platform you prefer. If anyone has tips on how to deal with the Spotify algorithm mysteriously screwing us, please do reach out. Anyhow, those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends about the pod. Please make propaganda for us and please do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.